0: If you need a turnkey professional development and team building experience for your company or community, LeaderCast events is your answer. We provide the guidance, technology, and entertaining CEU-accredited content for you to stream an in-person or virtual event for your team.
1: Welcome to the LeaderCast podcast, a weekly deep dive into the stories that transformed our guests into leaders worth following. I'm your host, Joe Boyd. Today, we talk to master storyteller, Neil Ford. I'm so excited for you to hear the things he's got to tell you, including why, if Shakespeare were alive today, he would actually make Breaking Bad on television, and his hacks to storytelling, including the thing you should never do in a pitch presentation, and also, most importantly, this amazing quote that I would like to put on my back as a tattoo, but it's too long. You'll hear it in a second. Neil Ford. Welcome to the LeaderCast podcast. Super excited to have you here in our uh, first month or two of getting the podcast rolling. Uh, You were one of the the guests uh, we really wanted to have. You're the first person I've actually interviewed that I haven't met in the real world until now. So it's uh, it's a pleasure to get to meet you. And I know some some folks here in our LeaderCast team really love the stories that they found of you. And I think they stalked you a bit and became your friend. And so uh, now I I get to be that. Uh, Before we get rolling, could you just... Tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do, and 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 what kind of trouble you're making in the world right now. That'd be great.
2: Yeah, uh, it's nice to meet you too, Joe. Um, I spent 25, 30 years in advertising in big agencies like Saatchi and Saatchi and Foot Cone and Building and did a lot of global um, campaigns. I used to be on the creative leadership side of the business. So serving as creative director or executive creative director, I always had Brilliant young people working for me. If you ever want to stay young, well, I I think that's the real—you know—screw the exercise. It's (laughs) it's about being around young people who are energized and creative. Um, Then I, uh, from that, went into a series of other businesses. For a time, I was sort of CMO of TiVo and and so on. But what I've done lately is I've pivoted to storytelling and consulting on messaging for. Corporations and executives who really want to become quite a bit better at telling stories, telling the story of their company, telling their own stories, and communicating with their own teams.
1: Yeah, that and that's how I think that's how we found you. Not, I have to say, like there, you have some weird special sauce in your uh, in your story videos. And uh, I was watching, uh, I think it's one of your more popular ones about enthusiasm, about the story about the uh, the ad executive coming in later, or whatever. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I watched that. I'm I'm a I've been a performer my whole life. I've been on stages. I would uh Second City improv guy was my background, but I'm also an introvert. So I have to like convince myself sometimes to have energy, I feel like, because my default is sort of low-key. And so I watched that right before our first couple of podcast interviews. And I was like, I need to have some enthusiasm, I need to need to make sure I, I manifest that. But you know, and you do such a great job of embedding everything in a story, which is kind of what I've devoted my whole life to as well. So super excited to. To step into some of that in, a, in maybe a practical way here in a few minutes. But uh, even this podcast, we kind of like to base it in story theory loosely. So kind of believing that everyone kind of starts their story in what feels like an ordinary, normal world to them. And then at some point, a mentor comes along, kind of taps you on this shoulder and sparks something in you, invites you to something, uh, uh, and uh, untaps that thing in you that makes you want to go on an adventure. And during the adventure, you face, of course, dragons and all sorts of things that try to stop you from getting you to your treasure that usually ends up being kind of what you thought you wanted at the beginning, but actually much deeper. And then you can bring that treasure back to your ordinary world, whatever that is. So that, you know, this stuff probably better than, than me, but that's basic story theory kind of uh, you know, from Joseph Campbell and others. And I've just found for leaders, it just, it is the way our lives tend to work, right? It is the stories Mm -hmm. we tell. Um, so we just want to get a little bit into your leadership story, your personal journey and the folks that have helped you along the way and uh, whatever the biggest mistakes and failures you're willing to admit on, on uh, camera, that would be awesome. And just kind of try to get into those dragons you had to slay and and how it made you who you are and the lessons you've learned that you can bring back to the rest of us. Uh, the first question I love to start with is if we can take, take you back to uh, 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old Neil. Did they call you Neil when you were a kid or did you have like yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, yeah. yeah? Uh I'm curious, what what were those early sort of adventure stories that spoke to your heart, whether it was TVs or movies or comic books or um historical figures? When you think of you as a little kid, what what kind of world was your mind drawn to?
2: There's a uh there was a few characters that were formative for me. Not not for in a good way, but just it's like, oh, (laughs) Lord, Um, you know, Joe, the the country we live in now, the the very the very foundation of the United States is it rewards initiative. That is people that make their own way and carve their own paths and have that impulse to do things other people haven't done. Yeah, I am not that person. And that that has been a very a crippling experience for my whole life Mm. um the the shows that I used to enjoy when I was a kid watching television were Kung Fu where David Carradine would sort of wander the earth (laughs) and and then there was another show I don't you're too young to remember it was called and then came Bronson and it was about 1968-69 the whole premise of the show There was a young journalist from San Francisco who has a very good friend who kills himself and leaves the journalist a motorcycle. And the journalist is so sort of fed up with um, the state of the things he's discovered as being a journalist that he decides he's just going to ride the motorcycle across the country. And so the entire show is just him encountering people uh, and, and helping them as much as he can along the way every episode was about how he encounters somebody in some form of distress and he comes to their rescue or tries to aid them. And that to me, that spoke to me as that's a decent life. That's a, that's a worthwhile life It's just yeah. wandering through, through the world and trying to improve the lives of the people that you come into contact with. And it's kind of funny that I find myself almost there again mm-hmm. in the, in the stories that I tell, Joe, it's, I, I'm not a big deal on TikTok. I've only got a couple hundred thousand followers. That's really small potatoes, but they're sort of ferociously waiting for the next episode. Yeah. It's, yeah, it, it's not big, but it's deep. And what happens is that I think that people, what people have responded to is that sort of impulse. It's like, look, we're all in this together. We're just human beings on a, on a journey. And, um, you know, we don't all have to play by these, these rules uh, that the only thing worthwhile is money. That's the only way you get judged is whether or not you're rich. And I think people are kind of exhausted yeah. by them. And um, just a, and one extra thing about that, which is one of my favorite authors is George Orwell, Animal yeah. Farm, um, 1984, uh, Down and Out in Paris, London. That's really a good read that most people are not aware of. I
1: don't know how
2: Um, um, Orwell has this terrific quote, and he says, an autobiography is not to be trusted unless it reveals something disgraceful. Because anyone who gives a good account of themselves is probably lying, since a life when looked at from the inside is really just a series of defeats. And what I love so much about that, and I return to that quote often, is we live in an age where where that's the exact opposite of the way people mostly are. They just trumpet their own, it's just constant bragging about how much money they have and how great they are and the vacation they just went on and their fancy car. And it's it's quite, to me, it's revolting, but that doesn't seem to be the prevailing wisdom. So this sort of tribe that I've accumulated, (laughs) small as it is, They sort of share that same sense, that same sensibility that, good Lord, would you please give your bragging a (laughs) rest?
1: Man, that's, could you, uh, I hate to use you as Google, but could you say that oral quote again?
2: Yeah, it's, it's no autobiography is to be trusted unless it reveals something disgraceful. Anyone who gives a good account of themselves is probably lying since any life when viewed from the inside is merely a series of defeats. Man. And I consider that really wise because that's how I see my own life. I I'm constantly thinking, "Oh, I should have done this, and I could have done that better." And you know, and, and and I think it may be a, a personality flaw to to not, as I say, you know, in the United States, everything is based on initiative. Do you have the confidence and the drive? to just soldier on despite all of the, you know, the dragons, as you put them, yeah. that, that I think is a tremendous strength and one that I wish I possessed more of that, you know, that, um, what's the word the English are so fond of using intrepid, right? That in, that's intrepidity where you just go, right, soldier on, you know, no matter what happens. <laughs> Off we'll we make it. <laughs>
1: Uh, And that, uh, so your early like those sort of myths or stories you were drawn to early on were that though right they were these sort of lone rangers in a sense that took initiative and went on a a journey alone. Well, yeah, except
2: that in both cases, um, while the while the voyage itself was solitary, the very the very uh, impulse was to meet others. Yeah, was yeah. was to connect with others that were on the same. we on their own version of the journey. Yeah. So. I, when you use the term lone ranger, I'd actually like to reverse it and say, no, it's okay. the exact opposite. It's someone seeking the company of others and trying to bring some solace in the fact that, no, 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 you're not alone. You're not. We're all yeah. in this adventure together. Yeah. This notion that somehow you have to impress us is an impulse based on your sensibilities of loneliness, that you are you don't feel like it's worthwhile to engage with others unless you prove to them how freaking great you are. Yeah don't have to do that.
1: When, when did you, I've been intrigued by the word ambition as I get older, because I feel like I had a lot of it. And I think every year that goes by, you got to like find it. (laughs) Sometimes you get, you got to muster it up sometimes, right? It's like in in my twenties, I I had all this ambition and, uh, and uh, that can cover up a multitude of flaws in some ways, right? Uh, It, in terms of giving you kind of the drive, you need to get up every day and just go for stuff. When did you first uh, and I'm not really. Ju- I don't. I, ha- I haven't made a judgment yet on ambition. I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, but when did you first start registering some sort of like ambition of what you might be to use like a mythic term, like called to or invited to to do in your life?
2: Uh, you know, I I don't consider myself tremendously ambitious. Uh, if I could, Joe, what I do, I'm going to refer to an old boss of mine. Yeah, um, Gilbert used to work. I used to work for him at Sachi, and. But what made him his ambition had a very particular flavor, and it was like this. it wasn't that he himself was trying to be any big shot. It's just he was he was compelled by his urge to protect others from bad bosses. So in <laughs> other words, he would say, "Oh, for goodness sake, it's not like I want to be the president, but I sure don't want you to be. Yeah. You know, like you would just destroy these people. you know <laughs> and and you meet um, in the course of business,. Uh, there is a kind of disproportionate amount of sociopaths at the top. And the yeah. reason is they just don't care about your whining. And because of that, they tend to just enforce this these rules of they expect more out of you. And people are capable of great things. And so when, when you – there's this great Louis C.K. story about how you can achieve anything if you're just prepared to throw enough human suffering at it. <laughs> like the pyramids, the Great Wall – you know dra- yeah. draining st petersburg out of a giant swamp if you know the american railroads if you just throw a bunch of people into a you know into a tunnel and dynamite the thing you can achieve great things well yeah. that that typifies a certain stripe of executive leadership they just don't care about anyone but themselves and because of that because of that internal greed they are they are fully prepared to make the difficult decisions and just be absolutely savage, and in this case, this boss that I had, he wanted to protect you from people like that, and it drove him to achieve
1: great things. Do you have advice for folks that are being led by someone like that?
2: There, uh, there is always another opportunity, and there is always a better company, and we. Uh, you know, whether you are in a an abusive relationship or a, a company that is a little bit, you know, where they think that human suffering is somehow a good thing. Um, you don't have to live with toxic relationships. There's there's no law of the universe that says you have to stay. And um, in a couple of times in my career. You uh, know, like. a uh, Excuse me for being so hesitant about this. My my brain is banging around like a pachinko ball inside a boxcar, but yeah. because the subject is so interesting to me. Yeah. But, you know, the um the idea that you have to put up with toxic leadership strikes me as it's not optimistic enough. There are great leaders out there, a lot of them, and there are supportive people. And uh, I think we need to have the confidence to go in search of those people you know, to give yeah. up something, to get something.
1: Yeah, that's really strong. I mean, my, um, you know, LeaderCast is a, it's a worldwide leadership brand. And I think some folks, when, when I let, let them know that I'm, I'm the CEO of it, um, they make assumptions that I'm, there's almost an assumption like, Oh, you're, you're helping turn out those toxic leaders, right? Like, like the best mm-hmm. leaders are the ones. So you're, you're really, and I, that is the opposite of my heart for this company. Um, we're looking for the folks that realize that that is a pretty empty, shallow existence, actually, in the end, even for that leader, you know? Um, yeah. And there, what I'm finding is as, as we are more bold about that, we're here for the folks that put people first, Um. then more and more of those folks are finding us, it feels like, you know?
0: Empower yourself and your team to tackle some of the most difficult leadership challenges and grow professionally with LeaderCast Now. The LeaderCast Now app, an online platform, provide you access to more than 1,000 video lessons to help you navigate issues like change management, remote working guidelines, emotional intelligence, workplace conflict, negotiating, and more. Visit LeaderCastNow.com for more info.
1: I am just. I'm thinking through your career a little bit. I'm fascinated by TiVo because it changed my life uh, because <clears throat> I could watch Survivor whenever I wanted. Right. So right, exactly.
2: Time shift was a major <laughs> revolution.
1: Yeah. I'm just a little curious, just on that. Uh, you know the the culture side of like changing changing the way people viewed entertainment. Um, what, what was your time there like? What learnings did you have? What was what was awesome? Oh my what god! It?
2: Yeah. So many learnings. But here was here was a big one, is that when I was there, um, Tebow was it had a a series of patents that protected it as the time shift device. The cable companies came up with their own versions of it and violated that patent, and which ultimately resulted in a, a couple of billion dollar legal payout. But the cable companies were making so much money from stealing that tech and just violating the patent that it was simply the cost of doing business for them. They didn't care. They, while the thing wended its way through the courts, they just banked gigantic sums of money. And that struck me as, wow, people really are prepared to go through life like that, where they don't care about what's right. They only care about, you know, and and it was a real lesson. It's like some people like that. And you know, cable companies in general do not have a great reputation of being good on customer service because they the very leadership itself was kind of like they really don't care. Um, that yeah. was one thing. So TiVo ultimately was very much like the Wright brothers. You notice how there's no Wright aircraft anymore, <laughs> right? right? Because yeah. they there was a moment when they had they had the market leadership, they were first to market with an astonishing product product. But they, the Wright brothers spent the bulk of their time fighting the patent violations instead of building airplanes. And so Curtis Aircraft and Lockheed and Northrop and Grumman, they all just focused on building airplanes. And ultimately, the market just wants what's best. And mm. um, well, TiVo did the same thing. It spent so much energy fighting the patents that it lost its first to market. Um, status, brilliant product, lovable. There was a, there was another thing about it, by the way, Joe, that I was so fond of. The thing that I used to we used to pitch our our device um, to a variety of different B two B situations, and you know, I did a lot of pitching. Mm-hmm. And what we always used to say was, television is the new book. And before you you know wince or look skeptically at that, if Charles Dickens was alive now he would be making a series like Breaking Bad or House of Cards. If if Emil Zola or or uh, Dostoevsky was alive now, they would be doing television because never in the history of the creative arts has there been anything nearly as satisfying as The Sopranos or any of these grand multi-season epics that allow character development. Um, Game of Thrones, what an astonishing thing for that to be brought to life on the screen. And um, that is the equivalent to me of a a grand book. And so what we used always to say was, television is the ultimate art form. If properly done, it reaches people on a level. The the creative achievement is astonishing. And so I I used to sell that to people and they would go, oh my God, he's right. If Shakespeare were alive, he'd be doing television, Um, right? And that was one thing. And then the other thing was that, uh, for me, the, the ability to shift time like that and not have to watch it all at the same time. Yeah. Allowed, allowed for, uh, rewatching it where in order they had to sustain the mystery. But at the same time, when you finally discover the answer to this, you go back to the original things and you realize how, how finely built that machine was to, uh, produces brilliant results. Yeah, Sorry for going for sure. That,
1: no, that's great. Do you have a I, uh, I will confess that I've watched The Office uh, up until Michael leaving about 12 times and then I've watched the seasons after that about five times. But, uh <laughs> do you have a show like that that comforts you that you find yourself constantly going back to?
2: Um you know, it's crazy because it's it's sort of new and old. Um Better Call Saul in a way w- was was Breaking Bad redo. And yeah. um the th- the thing that i found magnificent it better um, excuse me breaking bad was shakespeare it's essentially it's shakespeare because yeah. you have this figure who goes through a ma- magnificent transformation and ultimately redeems himself in the end through just a few final gestures it's it's the human story you know someone who is seduced by their own unexpected success and then becomes the monster that they would have been repulsed by. Um, and yet, it was so satisfying. The Walter White character is so satisfying because we we can both identify with him and be repelled. You know, it's that Freudian term, ambivalence. You are simultaneously attracted and repulsed. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, to me, that kind of thing where you can watch it repeatedly and watch the arc is magnificent. I think, uh, for me, The Sopranos is the same way. But uh, I don't want to get too far off track because nah, I you can... I can just go we'll forever accidentally
1: turn into an entertainment podcast. So let's <laughs> yeah, uh maybe right. people will more people will watch it. Um so I want to get back to your 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 throughline your story and it I'll I'll do a nice segue into breaking bad because you just brought <laughs> it up. So uh surely there was a time in your career in life where you had some pain or failure or maybe you started to believe your own press or something went on in your heart or soul I would imagine where life just started to feel not as great as you would want it to. And I would be curious, whatever you're willing to share, did you have a transformative moment or season or event where you feel felt like that was a turning point? I, I kind of hit a low. And this is what came out of that.
2: Quite a few. I've had quite a few sort of major failures. As I say, I I've got a I've got a character flaw in that I do not have sufficient initiative to capitalize on strengths. And that is a that's a debilitating thing, you know. To, so what I have discovered from that failure is just that there is great power in reaching out to try to find people to help you with that problem. So I've only recently teamed up with this group out of Sheridan, Wyoming. They're called uh, only Co, and they're a small advertising agency, but they're just such wonderful folks, and they're so brilliant. Um, I've reached out to them to help me try to be, to use their initiative to capitalize yeah, on my strength. Yeah. But well, I'll give you one, just, Joe, I could go on and on about my failures, but there was one in particular where um, I I went off to become the executive creative director of Bates Hong Kong. It was an, a very successful ad agency that was, used Hong Kong as the center, and then its region was Southeast Asia. So that included Singapore, um, parts of greater China, Um Taiwan, etc., and you know Indonesia, Philippines. Just it was this massive area, and in that, uh, when I first got hired in that job, I assumed that I was being hired to be the creative leader, only to discover very early that the cultural nuance from nation to nation was so significant that the just Hong Kong alone, despite the fact that it speaks English so brilliantly, it no no it's one hundred percent Chinese culturally, and. Mm-hmm. And I was completely out of my depth and confronted my boss, the general manager, one day and said, oh, my God, I I was just listening to a concept that I thought was absolute trash. And I am told that it's genius. And when they took me through the the nuance of it to describe why it was genius, I thought I will never understand what I'm doing here. And he goes, relax, you're not here to provide creative leadership. I'm not. No, everybody here. And in all these other countries, look at you as a kind of well-meaning idiot. And when you go from the the Philippines cannot stand the Indonesians. The Indonesians hate the Chinese. The the Beijingers hate the Shanghainese. The Shanghainese hate the Hong Kongers. The the Singaporeans hate the Malays. The Malays hate the Burmese, And so on and so on. They hate you less. So you are the gasket between these, these dislikes. You wander in there. And by your innocence, as I say, they look at you as an American and an American, they had a phrase, they would say, when the Americans show up, they have all the money and we know how things work. And when the Americans leave, we have all the money and they know how things work. (laughs) And you you were perfect because you're this, you know, this, this country bumpkin who they think they are, they're manipulating, but because I'm behind you. I know how to read all these signs. And I'm telling you, Joe, the, the level of humiliation at that point, you know, you just have to mm. say, well, I guess I'll learn as much as I can. And then, mm. you know, in the, the, when the clock ticks to the second when I can get out of here, <laughs> I'm on the next plane. So mm. uh, big learning from from that. And, you know, I, I suppose in a, I came back from that gig, by the way. My confidence was destroyed, just wrecked, because I didn't know what was good anymore. And that's all you had as a creative director was a was a sense of taste about what made yeah. sense and what was good. And when they when that got extracted, it was quite a while before I regained any sense of
1: confidence. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that there's that also that feeling of that sometimes in the the cave moment in our lives that you actually feel trapped, right? Like how am I going to get out of this? And, and it, for me confessing, I can, my shrink calls it catastrophizing where when yeah. I'm in a, when I'm in a bad situation, I'm like, it's going to be like this till I die. I'm never going to get yeah. out of it. And yeah. it, it there's a, there's the a
2: another term, a catastrophizing term <laughs> that I heard it was called living in the wreckage of your future.
1: Oh man, <laughs> that gave me like chill bumps in a bad way. Like, <laughs> I don't want to know yeah. that phrase. It's, it's true. <laughs> and I don't like it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, I want to sort of steer us here towards uh, your story as it is right now, and you mentioned it a little, but could you said 200,000 uh TikTok followers? You said is not a lot. I have 13, um, so it's more than me. I've never posted, so I feel like it's pretty good for not having posted. I have 13, yeah, exactly. Uh, but um, no, I like, like I said, there's a little magic in these stories that you do. I'm curious how you came up with that concept. How did you get the first? Two thousand people to follow you like what um, why do you yeah. think it works what what do you, what's going on with that? Just talk about it a little bit for me
2: uh well, so I, I started out i was I was doing these very very short video ads, if you will, on behalf of within the company that I'm a partner in um I was doing them on LinkedIn and they we didn't have a money really for a marketing budget, so I just took it upon myself to sort of Try to, deter- try to create a brand for us. Yeah. The difficulty, of course, is that in what we do, basically, we supply labor to tech companies that need developers. And um, in this, uh, this category of work, it's very difficult to make claims. And so, you know, there was no point in me saying that we're 15% better than anybody else and any of that kind of thing. Instead, what I wanted to do was help us communicate a, a sensibility a kind of a brand image of a company that you would enjoy doing business with. Mm-hmm. So I would tell these stories about things like the fact that when people get together, their IQs drop 15%, which is true. Whenever anybody like uh, joins a <laughs> company and they'll do like a brainstorming, their IQs drop 15% because instead of focusing entirely on the task, they they spend a good chunk of their mentality worried about the hierarchy of the room. And so with that kind of story, I would introduce the, the sort of within brand. Then subsequently, in the, over the course of that, I was trying to create more and more stories. And one of the stories I came up with was a recollection about my father and I. We broke down in our car in California's Central Valley in 1969. And the story was an illustration of how, even though we all think that the country is really, really super divided right now. In fact, if you go back to 1969, it was really bad. I mean, the country was being ripped apart by the Vietnam War and there was the, you know, they killed Martin Luther King Jr. They'd assassinated two presidents. They, I mean, th- that's not happening now. They're not going around shooting presidents. The, yeah. People don't re- recognize how desperate and awful it was. And in midst of this, I tell this story about my father who had sort of lost his faith in humanity. And over the course of the day, he regained it in spades. And that story really resonated with a lot of people to the point where it got more than two and a half million views on TikTok. And it got um, I think it got viewed on Facebook, but like five million times or something. Hmm. And that almost almost by itself created a kind of expectation that there was going to be a sequel or some other story. So it, it ramped up right away. And that got me kind of launched. The progress after that one has been pretty steady, but Mm -hmm. it was that one in particular really seemed to hit people in the fields. They they wanted to feel like there was hope. And there's kind of an interesting phenomenon, Joe. People don't know my politics and I'm not going to tell them because everybody that comes to that channel and it's (laughs) redder than red and it's bluer than blue, and yeah. they all think i'm on their side and i think <laughs> that's a nice place to be that's where, kind of a superpower in a way and yeah. here's here's what here's the hope that gives me if they both think i'm on their side then both sides are actually pretty cool if you dig down yeah right yeah that you'll find people that that believe the same things you believe but you stand on a Policies differently, meaning that there's probably a possibility we can reach an accommodation. I I don't. um, Your real question was about like why why do people Mm -hmm. go to the videos and how do they start? I'll just give you the real, real quick thing so that your question gets answered. Because unfortunately, I can go off on tangents, Joe, forever. But just to sort of complete the circuit, my daughter suggested I go on TikTok because she believed that the short form lent itself to that medium mm-hmm. and you know my stories are never more than three minutes because they don't let you do that on tiktok so yes. it's enforced a kind of discipline on me to tidy them up so that they fit within that framework and as it happens it's a kind of an interesting little discipline to be able to get get your whole story across, inclusive of a moral you know in three minutes did you ever used to watch the old twilight zone does
1: yeah, yeah, I've seen old, old a few times. of them, yeah, um, for sure. And
2: yeah. the the old Twilight Zone would always begin with some sort of little cold open kind of interesting uh-huh. hook. And then Rod Serling would come on and he would create a kind of, he would tee it up with the most lyrical, wonderfully articulate sp- pr- premise. He would say, they're about to find this out. You know, they, here's a selfish man who spent his entire life caring <laughs> nothing but for himself. And in a minute, He's going to find out that there's more to life in, in the Twilight Zone. And then, and then they do the little play. And at the end, he comes back and he resolves it with some form of moral. Mm-hmm. And I, I use that model, which is I'd mm-hmm. like to just introduce a premise and then tell you a story. And then I'm going to resolve it with a moral. And there's, TikTok happens to be a marvelous place for that. And it's not for everybody. If you look at the the metrics, the analytics of the viewership, it goes like this. So on something that gets, say, 100,000 views, there is a dramatic drop off in the first seven seconds. Like just what I want to be looking at, some douche ball. Telling me some recollection. Not for me. I'd rather watch girls dancing. Okay. So there's this dramatic fall off to 50% fall off immediately. And then there is, in the next sort of 35 seconds, there is another like 20% fall off. But then, boom, the, the 30, reliably 25 to 30% stay with it to the end. And you know for three minutes, that's pretty good. So yeah. in 100,000, it's really 25,000 people saw it for real. And I reckon that's actually pretty good.
1: I would think that- so.
2: That a 25% hanging on, that's, you know, you don't get, imagine how it is when you're out there in the world in a television show. If 25% of the people that originally tuned in stick with it, you got a hit.
1: So yeah, I'll take 25% in just a real life conversation. I'm like, oh, you're (laughs) still listening to me? You haven't walked away? That's brilliant. We're we're I'm stealing that, Joe. That's good. Yeah. Look, I'm not proud uh man, that <laughs> <laughs> uh i want to conclude with just uh we like to do like a serious question then a fun question based off uh based off what we talked about so uh you've started to go here a little but uh straight up like unapologetic hacks for telling a good story um if, if someone you know whether they're in the yeah. creative world or not obviously we're all telling stories all the time so you got a pitch coming up or whatever yeah. what are your two three like uh shortcuts to just Make sure you do this.
2: Okay. So number one, never make yourself the hero of the story. In other words, and there's a couple of smart reasons for that. One being, uh, by not making yourself the hero, instead by observing, you and the listener uh, are joined. That is, we are both participating in this as observers. So especially if something heroic happens in the story. Oh, for God's sake, do not make yourself the hero. Don't talk about how great you are and don't say, but I did this. Then, you know, they all applauded. Oh, please. You know, if you do that, you're going to absolutely turn half of the listeners into enemies who would love to see you fail. If you're pitching and you are the hero of your story, you lose. Because somebody in that room hates you now. Okay, so that's number one. You've got to identify with the people you're talking to. You say, uh, I, I used to feel as you do. And then I was watching this thing and this happened. And I thought, what an amazing young woman. And that completely changed my mind. about right, you see what I mean? It's mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you and I, we are proxies for each other. So that's one. Don't brag. Don't cast yourself as the hero in the story. Always cast yourself as someone who learned something. And that's a winner. Then the second thing is there's a um, marvelous um, rule that the guys from South Park created, which is don't say, and then this happened, and then this happened. Their rule is it should always be this happened, but then this happened, therefore this happened, but then that happened, therefore this happened. And Mm -hmm. if you can, what what you're doing is you're, you're creating tension and release tension and release. This happened. Therefore this happened. Okay. So now we've got momentum, but this happened. Oh, there's a barrier. And however they, you know, therefore they got around this and so on. And it creates, it creates an engine of, of vibration, you know, like you, you're eager to get to the end and it's, it's filled with highs and lows and tension. And, you know, you'll notice, uh, the the really great speakers. There's a lot of inflection in their voice. They'll go quiet. They'll go loud. They'll go up. They'll go down. It's not a constant metronome of everything. Is an upspeak like this? And you, to, you know. And after a while, you're exhausted because you don't know if this thing's ever going to end because they don't seem to have a conclusion. It's a making point. me nervous now. Stop. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I apologize. I went on too long, but you get the idea. It's, it's yeah. incredibly aggravating. You you need to provide. Uh, inflection moments of elevation moments of quiet and a great story is like that in terms of its story beats there will be you've suggested it yourself in this thing you know you, there, you're going to run into failures and you're going to have to react to failures and that down point is marvelous for providing the gasoline to then elevate you know people want to to have the uh, thing and I, I saw this uh Another sort of tip is um, all stories should have some element of mystery. What's going to happen? What? How is my hero going to be affected? Um, for example, in this story you were mentioning, the Enthusiasmo story about mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Rodrigo, he bursts into a room where he's 20 minutes late. So you're thinking to yourself, well, this is either going to be a disaster or a triumph. Let's see what happens. And the right. beauty of the way that he... Dealt with being late and bursting the doors open. I mean, nobody does that. Nobody is late and then it deliberately creates an explosion. That they know, I mean, it's talk about pushing all the chips in, right? This is either going to be a complete meltdown or a great triumph. Um, his audience, as it turns out, were all salespeople, like they were all natural-born salespeople. And nobody loves to be sold more than a great <laughs> salesperson because. When you go in and you are completely unapologetic, they go that a salesperson knows that takes balls, that takes strength, that, you know, this person is not afraid. I admire that. So um, in the case of, of like a Rodrigo, it, it, this, the energy was like a fantastic beginning. And at the end, he summarizes the whole thing by saying, admit it. That was brilliant right so in other words he's returned to the beginning he returned to his first claim which was i'm late but it's going to be worth it and then he comes back to the beginning and the, any a great stand up routine or a great story will somehow reference the first thing they heard and then i'll leave you with this last tip when it comes to storytelling the most valuable real estate in your story is the first 60 seconds. And you notice how people will stand up in front of a room and do a lot of sort of throat clearing. You know, like they'll they'll go, well, how's everybody doing today? Or uh, we're so excited to be here. No, you're wasting <laughs> yeah. the most precious real estate in the presentation. The opportunity to absolutely seize everyone's curiosity and interest by some provocative opening. Like, for example, one of the videos that I do is... About how I believe that minor league baseball is vastly superior than major league baseball. And everyone's like, okay, well, this is a puzzle of some form. So if I come right out and give you that and I say, this is a mystery, I, I need you to help me solve it at the end. You've got them for the, they've given you permission for the next minute to take them on that journey. And to get up and say something like, we're so excited to be here is actually people don't realize that surrenders status.
1: Yeah, no,
2: that's great. When you, when you walk into a room, if you say, we're so excited to be here, what it's saying is, uh, I thank you for letting us be in your presence. No, 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 no. You need to take the superior tech. You need to go in there uh, like, a, like a great band will usually open with something pretty up-tempo. It's a big noise and it comes and it overwhelms you so that the energy level goes way up and it oxygenates the room and then when everybody's like this then it gets quiet why yes. because between you and i i've got a secret
1: i love it that those are that's some great stuff man i uh i saw billy joe by the way in vegas a few months ago i i should remember the first song but it was, i know it was big and but they never showed him on the jumbotron until the very last uh Part of the song, and then because in your head he's still Billy Joel from 1988, and then they show him, and he, uh, and then right. it gets quiet, and what he says is, "I know what you're all thinking." He's like, "I got <laughs> old," <laughs> and it plays a riff. right.
2: Yeah, it's brilliant, brilliant
1: is, idea to not show him to the end. You know? Yes, he's yes.
2: he's built it into a. It's in part of
1: the act, you know. Yeah. The, oh, that's great. And that's he was great. he sang every song and killed it. Um, oh, so, uh, very last question uh hong kong wasn't great but if you had to go there for one night and have dinner at one place do you know where you would eat in hong kong
2: well the the thing about hong kong is the food is brilliant uh in about 19 different cuisines um people often use the term in the united states they'll say chinese food well well there's Hunanese and Shishuan and, and um, Shanghainese and Cantonese. And, and they're all vastly different. The same yeah. way that a soul food is so different from, you know, pizza. Sure. And um, there, I used to love, I, talk about pedestrian tastes. I used to love Malay food, uh, Malay and, um, and uh, Thai. And the Malays was slightly spicier than the Thai. And so there was this place called the Banana Leaf which is just, it's like saying Sabaro pizza here. And <laughs> yeah, Chipotle. To say such a thing is, I, I should really should work harder. But um, I will say this, that one of the things that I didn't realize is the coffee in Hong Kong is brilliant. Uh, probably the best coffee in the world. Indonesia, which is where Java is, where coffee came from originally, you know, Java comes from uh, Indonesia. Um Hong Kong was one of those cities, those global cities, that is the crossroads of the entire Southeast Asia and Asia and the Chinese continent. And as a result, they have the best of everything. I mean, oh, my Lord. And so I used to just love Chinese coffee.
1: There you go. We'll get on our motor. What's the guy that gets on the motorcycle and meets people?
2: Oh, yeah. And then came Bronson. So and we'll get, uh, yeah.
1: we'll get Bronson on a motorcycle someday. With you and me, we'll go have some coffee. It'll be great, yeah. Yeah. man. This was a, a thrill to talk to you, and I think both of us could keep talking forever. But we probably got—that's the, the truth, Joe. I could talk to you for a, <laughs> forever. Yeah, uh, and Good let's fun. do it again. And I'm welcome to the LeaderCast community. You're now officially a part of us. You can't not be. So uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch more, and and you, I'm sure you'll find a ton of new uh, friends and fans through the LeaderCast right, sure. Hope so. Thank
2: All you right. so much. All right, take care, Joe.
0: Leadership is a team sport, but team sports are hard. That's why our team is so passionate about helping companies and communities develop leaders and teams that trust each other to do the hard work together. One of the easiest ways to develop your teams and leaders is to stream a half-day or full-day LeaderCast event for your workplace or community. World-class content that is thought-provoking and activating. Visit us at leadercast.com to find out more.